Exodus. So it's sort of a transitional chapter, and you come to uh, chapter 12 is the Passover. Feast of Unleavened Bread is identified in the first part of uh, chapter 13. But what we're seeing here is the formulation of a nation, the nation of Israel, as God intends for this nation to be fashioned. So uh, we often talk, or we have talked in the past, about America being a, a Christian nation. And it certainly was founded, a lot of the principles were founded on, uh, on biblical um, principles. However, Israel is different. And so we're going to learn now, as we have mentioned several times, that beginning here in chapter 13 through the end of the entire book, there's this formulation for worship that God intends his people, his chosen people, to establish and to follow through the Old Testament. In fact, it's carried on into the New Testament. And in some cases, um, uh, quite a bit of it is followed today in uh, Hasidic Jewish uh, communities. So next Sunday morning, we'll start to look at worship, worship the way that uh, the Lord intended, and we'll go to John 4 and look at some passages. But we're going, we will see the structure here in this book. And it's interesting that we talk about the law and the Ten Commandments and uh, the commandments that are listed throughout the uh, end portion of the book of Exodus into the book of Leviticus, obviously, the reiteration, the second giving of the law in the book of De Deuteronomy. Um, all this is vitally important to, and it's vitally important to remember that the law is, is the spoken word of God, and that's the truth of God. So it, the intent here is that it would be found in our hearts and our souls, and the Lord Jesus would change us to desire and follow that. And in some cases, we see that here in, uh, in chapter 13. So last week, we closed out with uh, verses 3 through 7, then down through... 8 through 10, let's read those. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in the season, in its season from year to year. And then we talked about the principle of the uh, firstborn. Uh, so next slide, if you would... Uh, brother. We talked about the phylacteries, what was mentioned there in chapters, uh, excuse me, verses 8 through 10. We went there to uh, Matthew chapter 35. We looked at uh, that, uh, that uh, excoriating sermon that Jesus basically uh, preached to the Pharisees uh, just prior to uh, his crucifixion, to his betrayal and his crucifixion. And uh, I mentioned to you um, Turn with me to Revelation 13. I don't know that we went there last. I can't remember if we did. I don't think we did. But go with me to Revelation 13. And I'm, we need to be careful with, with um, prophecies because qu quite often we try to make prophecies walk on all fours. In other words, we want to look at a text and say, well, that's happening now, so that's just what the Lord means, and he's coming when the Lord is coming. He's definitely coming. But... Um, be careful that we don't uh, lock into what we read and say, okay, this is, this is uh, something that is definitely happening now, and so that's an indication of it. Well, these types of things have occurred throughout church history. 
that's one of the reasons we needed to know church history is to understand that. So in Revelation, um, verse 11, we, if, if in your Bible, in my Bible, the, the uh, <coughs> subtitle is The Beast from the Earth. And I think you've heard me, when we, pre we preached through Revelation about 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago now, uh, and I mentioned to you at that point in time, it's interesting that evil people in the book of Revelation are almost always referred to as some form of beast. And righteous people are referred to as those that are men and women. Now, there are some differences, but keep that in mind. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. We think that, or at least we have <clears throat> given the title of the Antichrist to the first beast, and this particular one would be uh, the sidekick, or basically a, uh, a high priest, if you would, to the Antichrist, who dwell in, uh, in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. This has to do with Elijah, prophet Elijah. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lit. Earth dwellers. There's another name for beastly people. Those that dwell on the earth. Now we dwell on the earth, but earth should not be our home not in the sense that we were preaching this morning. Heaven is our home. <clears throat> Verse 15, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. To the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. I think in this passage we see, it talks about the image uh, of the beast. And so what I, the point is, verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. <clears throat> the phylacteries that we mentioned last Sunday evening in the book of, here in Exodus 13 and in Deuteronomy, and the excoriation of the, of the um, uh, phylacteries in Matthew 23, here we see something very similar. Now these are not called phylacteries, but they're in the same regions. They're on the hands and the forehead. Satan is a great counterfeiter. And he really has, other than warring against God, he's never had an original thought. He's you know, extremely, far more intelligent than we are, but he lacks the the, he is ignorant of, of the works of God, and, and so he copies what often is seen. And this goes all the way back. This is the book of Revelation, all right? John wrote this around the end of the first century A.D. So this is uh, about fourteen year, 1,400 years hence or after Moses wrote uh, the uh, book of Exodus, maybe a little longer, approximately. And we already see that Satan is establishing himself or using this or will use it perhaps uh, as a sign that counterfeits the phylacteries. So 
this imagery is here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because there is some imagery here. And Josh is teaching Revelation on to his class on Sunday morning. Are you to chapter 13 yet, brother? Got through chapter 7. You're a man after my own heart. Okay. But keep that in mind. <clears throat> what we see here in verse 16, he says to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehand, foreheads and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast for his number is that of man and it's 666. And there's been a lot of a lot of verbiage and ink spilled over 666. The issue here is that there's a uniqueness to what this particular individual is going to do uh, toward the, during the tribulation period. This was also practiced among the Romans as they branded Christians 2,000 years ago. So you have to be very careful that you say, well, this is unique. This has never happened before. Oh, yes, it did. It happened a number of times throughout church history. So be careful that, again, we don't make prophecy walk on all fours. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention uh, tonight. Let's go back now to Exodus chapter 13. <clears throat> He's talking here about uh, that the Lord's... Uh, Law may be in your mouth. Uh, the Lord didn't command for literal boxes to be made. And then, of course, this was uh, this is something that man does. So this was not something that the Lord instituted as a form of worship. This is something that man instituted so that he would have some indication as to the legal aspects of what's taking place here. And we know that because the Shema says that the law should be written on your heart, not on your hands and not on your forehead. So remember that. <clears throat> so we move now to verses 11 through 16, and we talked uh, a bit about this um, last week. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, uh, and he lists uh, some of those. In fact, he had listed some of those back in verse 5, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And the Jebusites, the forerunners of, that's uh, another name for uh, Jabal Musa, which was Jerusalem. That's where the Jebusites dwell. Um, when he brings you to that land, he swore to you and your fathers gives you Set apart all that opened the womb, firstborn, to Yahweh. Take effect in the promised land. Again, a reminder of the deliverance that the Lord had established in, in taking a slaved and enslaved people, freeing them for him. Not for them, freeing them for him. Okay? And this particular uh, principle applies not only to the firstborn of humans, but it also applies to the firstborn of livestock. And we've been reminded that apparently the Hebrews certainly were, uh, pro they probably the only ones that had any livestock after the plagues. Uh, and the focus here is that 
I have provided these for you. You didn't work for them. By my grace, I supplied you with this livestock to help feed a million and a half, two million people as they made their way from Egypt to Canaan. So, and that's where the, the Lord reminds the Hebrew people all that. I gave these to you. You may have herded them, but you herded them as an enslaved people. They weren't yours. But I protected them for you so that you might worship me. So the firstborn of a donkey, you redeemed that with a lamb, firstborn among men, and so forth. Um, that's the, the principle that we see here in these verses 11 through uh, 16. Let's look at verse 17. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in the orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. And so they took their journey from Succoth. They camped in uh, Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the, <coughs> excuse me, lead the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So this, the Lord led them with his spirit. This has been referred to as the Shekinah glory of God, the shining glory of God. And it, it uh, uh, proceeded here as they made their way out of uh, Egypt uh, and led them for 40 years. So remarkable. Next slide, if you would, brother. <clears throat> so there's a setting apart here that's uh, mentioned in those uh, verses in, in 11 through 16. He talks again about the dedicating of the firstborn and how that is a reminder of his great work and power uh, for Israel. Then they now enter the Exodus itself. And this is unexpected. This is, not, this is not something that they would have been prepared for. If you remember Passover, the Lord said, you, you prepare the food and eat it quickly. Have your sandals on your feet. Have your robes tied around you because you're going to leave and you're going to leave now. So there were no strategic plans. There were no maps. There wasn't any discussion of we're going to go this way. They followed the cloud by day and the uh, fire by night. And the Lord led them where he wanted them to go. And you will notice there was places that he did not want them to go. And that speaks a great deal about you and I. Okay? And uh, so what we have here is the coastal route. And I've spoken about this uh, uh, in a number of uh, a number of times before in some preachings through the gospel. The via maris is the is the Latin term, the way of the sea. 
It was also the high, called the Highway of the Kings as it ventured off into the land of Canaan. Uh, it was the shortest and the most common way to travel from Egypt to Canaan, but they didn't go that way. Very inefficient of God, don't you think? You know, you type all this stuff in your GPS. What happens when you type it in your GPS? They give you the quickest route. They give you the shortest route. They give you the longest route, perhaps. Or, and then you choose which one you want. Well, they didn't have the GPS, and they certainly knew that if we followed the route of the sea along the Mediterranean Sea and up, it wouldn't take them but a few weeks. But they didn't. The Lord did not lead them that way because it was a trade route. There are, were a number of Egyptian military outposts adjacent to this route. I'll show you a map here in just a moment. As they left Egypt, the Egyptian army would protect the travelers along that way. As they made their way to Canaan, the armies of the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, Hivites, and the Jebusites would have military outposts. So here's a people that had never known war. And obviously there would be some battles as they entered into Canaan, but the Lord had them avoid direct confrontation with militaries that were far, far superior to, the, to them. Chapter 14 is the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, Pharaoh changes his mind goes after the Hebrew people. But the Hebrew people don't fight Pharaoh. And they don't because they're not prepared to do it. Well, there's a lot of people who say, no, they weren't prepared. And so the Lord had all of this in mind as he led the people. Um, and because of this, the Lord knew that if, if they encountered any type of pushback, they would change their minds. In fact, they even wanted to change their minds because of the food they ate. The Lord provided the, the manna for them, provided the quail for them, and after several years, they said, I don't, we don't want to eat this anymore. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to enjoy the garlic and the leeks. So they changed their mind even over the food. That's how fickle human beings are. So the roads were easily traveled. It was the shortest distance, but it's not the way that the Lord led them. Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. I hope you have that underlined or highlighted or something in your Bible. That's one of the great earmarks of God. He's faithful. He's never been unfaithful. I have. But God never has who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So this speaks to the, uh, goes back to the Lord's Prayer where the Lord taught us to pray and deliver us from evil. Okay? So that's what the Lord is doing. 
He is delivering the Hebrew people from the potential of a military confrontations that would cause a great number of them to lose their life. Next slide, uh, brother. So he, there's a quote from a, a commentary on by the man by the name of Trapp. He carefully chose their way out of Egypt. They didn't go the nearer, but the safer. He tempts not above what we're able, but so orders the matter that evils are not ready for us until we for them. Um, G. Campbell Morgan wrote, The nation delivered and consecrated is seen at once as under the direct government and guidance of God. Now, some of that changes, but right now, the Lord is leading them. And they go by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. Now, this is not the huge expanse of the Red Sea that, you, that is on the maps. We'll show you that here in just a moment. It's the western finger of the Red Sea that extends up to the borders of Egypt, the modern-day Gulf of Suez. And I think there's a, the next slide is the map. I hope you can see this. <clears throat> Now, this is important because <clears throat> when they get to the crossing of the Red Sea, it is the Red Sea, but it's a portion of the Red Sea that is not this portion. For across this portion of the Red Sea is about... 50 kilometers, which would be in the neighborhood of 30 miles or so, 30 to 35 miles. So the, the uh, highway that we're speaking of here, notice Gaza? Geography doesn't change, does it? Gaza was the capital city of what tribe of people? Do you remember? The Philistines. And the Philistines were a warring people. So they don't go that way. Uh, in fact, with exception of Moses and a few of them, maybe Joshua and Caleb and others, not many of them had been outside of Egypt. So this is what's today called the Gulf of Suez. The Suez Canal now is carved up here. This is, this is an older map, all right? And the Red Sea would slip down, and you don't see the end of this peninsula here. This is Mount Sinai. We'll come back to this later on. And, and it curves around and extends up to, uh, on the east would be Midian, and on the west would be Sinai. Midian is where Moses spent most of his life. This is where he married. This is where he wrote, uh, raised his children. This is where Jethro lived. We'll learn about him as we already have. And so they leave the land of Goshen. Here's Succoth that's mentioned there. And there are two possible routes, okay? One is, and it probably is the purple one, which brings them down to Mount Sinai, or Horeb, the mountain of God. This was where Moses encountered Jehovah in Exodus 3. So he's already a long way from Midian. 
And these folks travel this usually by foot, sometimes maybe with donkeys. Uh, horses were only owned by the wealthy. Moses certainly would, uh, Jethro was wealthy, so he probably would have had a horse or a camel or something of that nature. But most of these people walked everywhere they went. So when we come to talking about, and we'll start to look at this uh, perhaps next week as we talk about the Red Sea, we're not talking about crossing here. The finger is in this region here, okay? When the, when the rains come, this would be the Nile right here, when the rains come in this area, the sea itself swells into the land of Succoth. So we'll talk a little bit about that and the proximity of the... Um, the Red Sea and what's going to take place. But uh, the Lord's leading them, the Lord's protecting them, and that's always a good thing. Any comments or questions on what we've covered this evening? <clears throat> Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, bless us, we pray, as we depart this place. Keep us safe this coming week. We ask for your mercy and for your grace, because as Peter wrote, you give more grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.